Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Gil Roth, president of the PBOA, otherwise known as the Pharma and Biopharma Outsourcing Association. Many of you will know Gil from his days at Contract Pharma magazine, where he was the editor for 15 years. He's also been named on the Medicine Makers Power List in 2019. And I suspect most of you out there that listen to this podcast have come across Gil at some point in your career in the sector. So, hey, Gil, welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So, for those who don't know who you are, which is not many people, I suspect, <laughs> tell us about you and obviously the PBOA. And maybe just rewind the clock as well and tell us how you kind of got into pharma in the first place. Sure. Um, my career is by accident, which I'm, I'm fine with admitting. Uh, back in 1999, um, I was editing a cosmetic packaging magazine and the idea came to our company, the, the trade magazine company I was working at for Contract Pharma, which was a, a magazine covering the CMO and CDMO sector. Um, through happy accident, I ended up as the founding editor of the magazine, had to teach myself not just the CMO and CDMO world, but everything about drug development and the whole drug ecosystem. Um, in the process of that, I developed a good degree of expertise, particularly about the outsourcing world. And over 15 years, I, I built a lot of good connections and relationships within that, uh, that part of the, the sector. And so basically a couple of events happened that made me think the industry really needed some sort of trade association, uh, a group that would organize CMOs and CDMOs and help them face out towards Congress, FDA, other regulatory and legislative bodies, and also be able to, to share internally good ideas, best practices, things that would basically strengthen the entire CMO sector and as such reflect back on the the customer side, on the, the companies that own the licenses for the, the drugs that CMOs and CDMOs make. So uh, 2014, I organized the industry, quit my job at the magazine, and um, then discovered I had to register as a lobbyist with the U.S. government and all <laughs> sorts of other complications I seriously did not anticipate well, when I was going into this. But the upside was we really helped bring the industry forward with especially with FDA. Mm -hmm. The big reason we initiated the the association was a generic drug user fee amendments or GDUFA. Um, they had been negotiated this industry user fee without CMO input the first time around and created some fees that were really um, damaging for CMOs. So as the as GDUFA was coming up for its next five year renewal period, um, we convinced FDA to bring us into the room for negotiations with industry and the agency and really made the case that CMOs are different than license holders. They're different than the, the generic companies they work for or the innovator companies, et cetera, and have different business models. And as such, we were able to negotiate a much more equitable deal for CMOs under GDUFA going forward. When we did that, that really proved the concept of having a trade association and things really took off from there in terms of bringing more and more companies in and really helping to, to understand the variety of uh, business models and interests that these companies have and making sure that we can represent both the global multinationals and the, the little guys and all the mid-tier companies in between. 
That's awesome. And let me ask you the question, and how difficult was it to leave Contract Pharma? Because I know for many of us that have been in the industry for many years, uh, you know, you were very much part of <laughs> the industry from an editorial perspective. And I suspect, you know, after 15 years or so being at you know such a credible publication, it must have been a, a hard decision not only to leave Contract Pharma, but to you know, take the plunge and, you know, and set up your own business. It, it was you know, th there was anxiety, but my life is driven by anxiety, so that worked out okay. Uh, there was a degree, <laughs> thank you, uh, there was a degree that, you know, how many times can you write the stability storage article? You know, there's, there's only so many years in a row you can do X, Y, and Z. And so I felt that, you know, I'd accomplished what I wanted to accomplish with the magazine and that I was leaving it in a good place, a good position for the the successors editorially, didn't screw over anybody in terms of, of you know, working with editors or with advertisers. Um, I really, you know, part of the reason I could do what I did with the association was that I really tried to, to build a lot of goodwill within the industry. Mm -hmm. I, I tried not to play favorites. I tried not to do the, if you're the big company, we give you more attention than the little guy. And that really seemed to carry over once I, I moved into PBOA. It's adjacent to contract pharma in that respect. It's the same industry. So I was able to stay involved, but feel as though I was making a difference in a very different way. When we settled the Gadufa user fees, I remember I was talking to my, my former publisher at Contract Pharma. And his take on all the savings that CMOs were about to see was, um, you know, how it would tie into their future marketing plans and such. And my take was, wow, I'm not even thinking of marketing anymore, dude. I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of like you know, justice for the industry and making sure we're taken seriously, building our profile with FDA and then Congress, as I discovered. So, yeah, it's um, it, it was a big transition, but doing it with the companies that I'd earn the trust of and that, you know, I really believe in uh was was the thing that you know made this less nerve-wracking than it could have been um and yeah. you, you stumbled on an interesting point there around kind of the fda in, in congress and do you mind explaining a little bit more around you know what impact you've had or what visibility or exposure you've had to congress and, and fda and, and being able to represent the industry at a at a much higher level than probably that we've ever seen before Sure. Well, during the Gadufa negotiations, that was the explaining to the FDA people in the room and then feeding that up the, the chain of command, how different CMOs are, that we subscribe to the same, we have to subscribe to the same quality standards and everything else that any other manufacturing facility does, but that the business model is different, the way they work with quality agreements with the customers, FDA might have an, a, a, an ideal version of that in their guidance, but in reality, things can be messier. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, we're able to really work all the way to the top of, of CEDAR, the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research with, with Dr. Woodcock and her executive team. Uh, we were able to, to request a meeting with her and, and her people and really just sat down and talked through the CMO sector, areas that we focus on, things that differ in terms of how we approach certain manufacturing technologies as opposed to the way license holders would. Uh, and she had a real eureka moment during that time, uh, the, the understanding that the way she put it, so you could teach us about all these advanced technologies and you're not <laughs> going to sweat us about your, your NDA or BLA. You just want us to understand the technology so you can implement them better. And we were like, yes, you get it. This is what we want to do. We're not going to harass you about one particular application. 
we want to make sure you know how this stuff works so that we can use this as a platform to build out a lot of different uh, drugs for customers. And and it worked a lot from there. Uh, similarly, once we got through Gadufa, FDA reached out to us for serialization issues as DSCSA was being implemented. Until then, they'd really only heard about CMO readiness from CMO customers. And once we were in the room, we were really able to, to give more nuance to the way CMOs are approaching serialization, some of the challenges they face, as opposed to a, an in-house company uh, implementing yeah. its own serialization line and things like that. So they just didn't know what our perspectives were, what our, what our day-to-day practices were, and how we fit within the bigger framework that doesn't necessarily take CMOs into consideration. When it comes to Congress, the flip was they knew nothing about how how drugs get made the way CMOs work, that if something has GlaxoSmithKline on the label, you assume it's made by GlaxoSmithKline, when in yeah. fact it could be made by a CMO. And they just didn't know that model prevailed. And so really talking to them about what we do and being able to give them honest feedback about ideas when it comes to manufacturing, sometimes about re- repatriation issues and other stuff, um, they seem to really appreciate the well the fact that i'm incapable of lying and as such really <laughs> and, the educa- and the education uh, and the yeah. education i suspect is that you, you've have to or you've been able to educate congress on the value and role of this sector in actually bringing medicines to market for patients on a daily basis yeah and, and particularly the role that cmos play when it comes to startups they all yeah. all these local representatives and senators want to be the next biotech hub and we explained to them, without CMOs and CDMOs, they can't do that. They would never be able to, to raise the capital to put up actual, even small-scale manufacturing sites for things that are probably going to fail as they try and develop their pipelines. Thanks to us, we could take some of that risk off of them, some of that capital risk, and they can actually just focus on the molecule and the science and figure out how to how to become the next biotech hub. Exactly. And, and you you kind of thankfully allowed me to kind of segue into another subject when you've mentioned obviously the FDA and Congress and at the time of recording obviously COVID and the spread of the coronavirus in particularly in, in North America but across the world as well as becoming uh, you know scary for all of us and certainly as a, as a PBOA member I've seen a very proactive and active role by the association in in this kind of situation so do you mind talking a little bit about you know your role and what you've been able to do and you know how that's benefited or will benefit the, the kind of sector at large sure well you know part of what we do and as i mentioned i had to register as a lobbyist we also have a lobbying firm we use down in washington and they do a fantastic job for us really get us in the room with with the right people they they hear things. That's how Washington works. You hear who's talking about what, what sorts of bills are coming up, uh, who's floating certain ideas and and why. And we're able to, to help influence those and educate, you know, reps and senators as they're working on certain ideas. Um, when it comes to COVID, a lot of our members are working on helping customers, whether it's license holders, uh, government institutions, academia, working with them to help develop and potentially scale up manufacturing for treatments, vaccines, other attempts at at mitigating what's going on around us. We also... um, a number of our members have been contacted by BARDA, which is the Biopharmaceutical Advanced R&D something. 
Uh, I forget what the A is, but but anyway, that's the uh, the public sector partnership with private companies. We see it with BARDA is currently helping fund Johnson & Johnson and Moderna's efforts to develop uh, COVID-19 vaccines. That money, t- it feeds into manufacturing of those uh, vaccines, not just the, the development stage. So BARDA talks to some CMOs because those CMOs are connected with those uh, companies like a J&J or a Moderna uh, to make sure that the CMOs are in a position where they'd be capable of scaling up manufacturing to certain levels. Just yesterday, I actually had a one-on-one with somebody from BARDA. We'd reached out a few weeks before, I'd reached out a few weeks before um, to say that I know you've talked to some of our members this is the association. We would love to be, you know, a collective resource to you any way we can. Uh, and it took them a while to, to get back to me because <laughs> they're a little busy right now. <laughs> but, you know, when they did, you know, we really talked through what the CMO sector is, how, you know, what we have at PBOA can help them, how I can help not just with the existing members, but again, I've been around this space since 1999. I know a lot of companies. I know a lot of names. We can always, you know, if they've got someone they want to reach, but don't know a contact person, I can connect them very quickly. Um, But also just helping to identify the sorts of capacities and potential expansions that some of our members uh, have to give them some framework of if things two to three years from now need this sort of scale, which companies are going to be potentially available, who, if they start building now, could have capacity online for us, you know, things like that, that they you know, if they are doing it company by company, it's a dilution of their efforts where it's something that we can really build uh, as a resource, you know, through PBOA. Yeah. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. You know, that access to you gives them immediate access to the right types of contacts and the right types of companies, which will kind of fast track that plan. So I think that's a, it's a great piece of work that PBOA is, is doing, uh, which will yeah. hopefully benefit us all <laughs> in the yeah, long term. Fingers gym. crossed. Yeah. Yeah, and I, mean, I don't know how you feel, Gil, about it, but I mean, I, I certainly feel a real sense of pride that I, you know, that that I'm involved in this sector at the minute that I believe will be central to whatever becomes the treatment or vaccine, uh, and even whether it's you know testing kits or whatever, the, the sector that we work in is is going to play a huge role in helping a global population manage this situation and potentially treat patients across the world. And I, I certainly feel very proud to be part of the sector that will do that. And I, I suspect that'll be the same for yourself. Oh yeah. There's a degree that if anything, I feel like I'm not doing enough. I was talking to one of our members yesterday about this and, and she said, uh, you know, Gil, you're, you're doing plenty. You're just not on the line physically, like filling vials and doing visual <laughs> inspections and everything, but everybody's got a role to play. And there's that a degree of that, you know, where I just feel like we're, you know, I feel pride in helping represent this sector and making sure any way we can to, to facilitate these sorts of connections uh, to help our companies if they're trying to expand, you know, capacity and that there's a way to do this. It's going to help manufacture these products for, I, you know, they talk about the U.S. market, et cetera. But to me, I always want to play up the fact that this is global you know yeah there are borders but at the same time this this whole pandemic proves you know if, if one country's getting sick everybody else is getting the sniffles you know we're gonna exactly. all feel it eventually so you know making sure that we're producing this and that there's an infrastructure to distribute it that's going to be hugely important 
And, do, and just on that point, then, do you see the PBOA? And understand from that you have members in in Europe as well, uh, in in Asia as well. So it's not like you are just a North American entity in the sense that you're not just supporting clients locally. But do you think that the PBOA will maybe branch out and expand its presence? Maybe from the the impact of what's going on at the minute, I think if anything, it probably really highlights the value in your organisation. Sure. We've we've talked about it since beginning the association in 2014. We've had conversations about growing either in terms of other service areas or other geographies. And the first thing we did was move up into Canada to work with Health Canada on certain issues. Uh, very recently, in fact, the last business trip I took uh, before the end of all this was to Japan. Uh, one of our affiliate members, Namikos, uh, uh, brought me out there and they had me speak to the uh, Japanese CMO Association. And even at the time, it was mid-February, we were concerned about this, but nobody quite knew what the pandemic was going to mean. I think they had <laughs> just uh, canceled the bulk of the uh, Tokyo Marathon so that the open section was was gone. It was just going to be the elite runners. And I think they had just declared, uh, they'd closed all the schools, but it was still preemptive at that point. So, um, but I talked with that group and we really they had good conversations um, about potentially, and I've spoken to JCMOA people a few years ago too, about what Japan needs in terms of, you know, how it could grow its CMO association or CMO market um, and what, you know, uh, PBOA could help them with in terms of understanding understanding what I've learned over the, the six years, which is how to identify what you need first. You don't just create a trade association for nothing. You have to have a reason for its existence. Mm-hmm. And really helping them to try to ID what that is, and then seeing if we can help operationalize that. Um, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to a lot of things in future. I'm, I'm really <laughs> looking forward to you know being able to help with that. Europe, I'm always interested in, but it's a. There are logistical difficulties with the the well, starting with Brexit, then getting to all of the different nationalities and uh, and languages, frankly. Uh, getting the Europeans, European-only CMOs to understand the way trade associations work in North America. There are some cultural issues that I, I came across early on when I was launching PBOA uh, that taught me that, you know, for the moment, we're going to stick with North American companies, and then we'll, we'll start bringing in guys who are non-North America, which we've done uh, over the years. But figuring out what their needs are in Europe and how to address the the regulators and the other industry bodies is something I'm, again, looking forward to, but it's, you know, kind of a longer term goal. Yeah. I have to ask, because I haven't been and I'm desperate to go, but was this your first trip to Japan? And if so... Yeah, that was part of the whole how, thing. And how, how was it? I, I have oh, to ask, it how was tremendous. it? It was fantastic. <laughs> My wife came with me and we decided if this is the last trip we ever get to take together, because <laughs> going to travel, we, we came off okay. This was wonderful. We did uh, Tokyo... Osaka. We had a couple of stops in between for uh, visiting various pharma-related companies there. And um, wonderful meals, great hotels. We got to do the bullet train. We got to just oh, wow. walk around on our own a bit. Um, really, really fantastic time. I'm, I'm dying to get back there, but not willing to die to get back there. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it, it was tremendous, though. Um, and that was the, uh, it only came up because during a conversation with Namakos in uh, New York, I'd mentioned never going and they just, oh, 
maybe, maybe we could talk about that. Then a few months later, it was, we would like very much for you to be our guest in, in Osaka and, and come out. I'm like, yeah, I, I could do that. That, that would be um, fine. Um, very, very jealous. Very jealous oh, indeed. It, but, um... it, it was wonderful. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. And on, it's interesting what you said there. So presumably you met met the company at a, at a trade event or a show or something. And how how do you think the industry is adapting with with the lack of face to face meeting? Just curious to know both your members and yourself, and how how do you think it's impacting the industry, if at all? Oh, it, it is definitely. I mean, especially something like DCAT, that was a, a show where you do business, where you sit down with companies, you you know, you, you have the conversations, you get business going. Some of the other shows are more, you know, the the exhibit floor thing and yeah. some of its meetings, but other things are, are foot traffic. So it's a, a different vibe, as well as the fact that nobody has facility visits. It's not just the, the, the macro travel for trade shows. I... I don't think any companies are allowing cu- potential customers to come into their sites for a visit mm-hmm. at this point. Um, I don't think those potential customer companies are sending people traveling anywhere either. Um, so it's changed everything in terms of how, from a business development and sales and marketing direction, you interact. Companies that I was looking forward to, to meeting up with, both member companies and perspectives, that's all by the wayside. I've had some good conversations during this this period with potential members who, when this is over, we should become part of PBOA. I'm like, yeah, let's try to put a timeline on, you know, over because I have a feeling this is going to be a, a, a long term. We we don't we're not going to have a um, now we're in the new normal. You know, I think yeah, things will yeah. be a, a phase transition. But um, yeah, it's it's changed a lot. A lot of members have told me they've. They've developed virtual tours of their facilities yeah. that that's yeah. necessary. Everybody's doing Zoom, obviously. Uh, we're doing things like this. But, you know, as far as real trade shows go, that's, you know, there's a certain value. Uh, to be honest, I have the same thing with the uh, GDUFA, which we talked about earlier, the generic mm-hmm. drug user fee amendments. They're coming up for renegotiation this year. And the assumption is like five years ago, the negotiations will start September or October down at FDA and they are always in person and not no telecom of any kind. And I'm not sure that's going to be feasible. I, I, now the, the downside, if they do permit teleconference is that a lot of value comes from the, the little side conversations in the hallway before you go into the room and the the downside of this you know this sort of uh, connection is you don't have that anymore yeah so you know all those little things that make for the the bigger human picture of how we communicate what we say beyond just the official sort of stuff that 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 goes away it becomes a lot more difficult to to get the nuance of what somebody's talking about to get all the little things that as I've I've said over the years, my mutant superpower is schmoozing, and you can't <laughs> schmooze quite the same way. I once had an FDA meeting like this where we brought uh, during the serialization period, um, we brought a, a team of PBOA member representatives who were serialization experts to sit down with FDA, and 
I introduced them and I said, I'm not going to say another word for the rest of this meeting because I know less than anyone else in the room about this topic. And they all laughed, but that's how I, I get away with this. But they had a great conversation. When we finished up, I just shot the breeze a little with the FDA person in charge on the way out of the building. And mm-hmm. my members had already gone ahead. They were waiting for the shuttle bus. And I just schmoozed a little bit. And during that time, the FDA person didn't say anything explicitly, but I got the idea that the the period of enforcement discretion that industry was hoping for, but hadn't been announced, was going to happen. And mm-hmm. again, there was no direct, hey, Gil, don't tell anyone, but we're going to do 12 months of enforcement discretion. That didn't happen. But I got to my members and I said, I have a feeling we're getting 12 months of enforcement <laughs> discretion. Two weeks later, they announced 12 months. And again, you're going to miss out on all that stuff. We're going to be more you know, official, I guess, in our communications. We're going to assume that other people are on the line or that you know the Zoom conversation might not be secure, et cetera. So yeah. all that stuff's going to be weird. I was talking with the guy I've known longest in this industry, the guy who was in the very first issue of Contract Pharma. And we were marveling over how everything we assume in terms of business practices, it's, it's all gone in the space of yeah. a couple of weeks. And it just how amazing it is. It can all disappear like that. What it's are you in, seeing from your side, for, from your perspective, has it changed? Well, it's interesting you said that because one thing that you, you, you mentioned you know, around the event cancellations, we're certainly seeing a huge, you know, away from obviously this in my day job, you know, we're seeing a huge demand for things like virtual tours and uh, webinars and, you know, <clears throat> more video-based communication um, and more digital marketing efforts. So, you know, most of our clients, as you know, are in the, in the, the outsourcing space. And so for many of them, the disappearance of the event calendar and the conferences is, is meant a pivot towards doing other things. And it's actually lent itself to doing more digital marketing tactics in terms of driving the right type of traffic to your website, making sure those people are doing what they're meant to be doing when they get there and ultimately leading to uh, kind of conversion, whether that be leads or inquiries or, or whatever that might be. And that's certainly the trend that we're seeing, uh, just kind of a pivot from you know, one pot of money going onto events into into another area. And, uh, and in, interestingly enough, what you said there around the side conversations, and that's something I really miss about particularly DCAT. I think DCAT is, yeah, yeah. is a it's a, it's a really it's a really fun event, and it's it, a lot of business is done there, and it's one of the reasons I really like it. Um, and I, it, bizarrely, I'm also seeing clients simply just picking up the phone and ringing my mobile phone, which again sounds crazy, but you know, often it's like you know, I'll see you at DCAT, or you know, we'll, we'll schedule a call in a couple of weeks. But there just seems to be more kind of of a, an acceptance that you can pick up the phone and have a conversation with someone and you can just ring them direct. And I quite like that. It's almost a little bit old school. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I come from a PR background, as you know, where you would pick up the phone to the journalist and you would have a conversation with the journalist. And those times have disappeared over the last, uh, you know, certainly the last decade or so. So it's gone a little bit, old. I know, d- despite all the technology, it's gone a little bit old school. And I quite, I quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's certainly what I've, what I've seen in, in one question I was going to ask you to kind of come back is, so you've been in the industry for the best more than 20 years now. And how has the industry kind of changed and evolved in that time? So from you arriving, you know, fresh faced in, in the late nineties to, to where we are today, what big changes have you seen in that time? Or actually is the industry very similar to what it was, you know, two decades ago? 
Now, there's certainly, there's been changes in terms of sophistication on the part of, of the CMOs and on the part of the customer side in terms of understanding how to manage and work with CMOs better. There are still some of the, the bugaboos uh, that came up in the old contract pharma days, the quote unquote continuous improvement, which was code for, can you do it for us cheaper next year and pass along all the savings? But at the same time, when I started out, one of the big models was acquiring facilities from pharma for a dollar and a trailing supply agreement and building out your your network that way, trying to get to scale really fast. That looked like a house of cards to me at the time. Uh, I had no business background or you know strict pharma experience, so I said, "Well, I'm just an unfrozen caveman, you know, uh, editor here." But it doesn't look like that's a sustainable business model. Turned out not to be, and. Companies have gotten smarter since then. Acquisitions tend to be for specialized technologies or areas you're not currently, dosage form types and and going from small to large molecule, things like that. Um, one of the areas of interest to me is the um, the end-to-end small molecule side, especially like a Cambrex mm-hmm. going from API all the way through dosage form and figuring out whether customers are going to be into that, that model. Um, we saw more sophisticated private equity get into the space. That's made things, they learned some lessons at the same time that uh, the CDMO sector got smarter. There was also an understanding that there are, in America at least, the private equity mentality, which was almost, you know, we're smarter than the players in the sector. We can do it more efficiently, holds up only to a certain degree. Uh, and they seem to learn that, oh, yeah, no, there are reasons why the business was done like this and we're, we bought into it now and we have to, to stick around. So there's a greater, I'll tell you, one of the big changes, uh, companies wouldn't admit that they outsourced when I was starting. And, and it was weird to me because I'd visited some CMOs and they would literally have like the little welcome Merck, for example, uh, sign as you walk in the door and you talk to Merck, like, no, we, we make a hundred percent of what we sell. We sell hundred percent of what we make. I'm like, I literally know you're lying to me right now. And you don't have to do that. You can just say it's a, it's a better business practice to have a internal and external manufacturing network. No, no. Uh, reputationally Merck is Merck. Just as an example, you know, other companies yeah. have the exact same thing. Uh, now there's much more, partly because it's material to their earnings. So from a, a security and exchange commission perspective, they have to cop to a degree of third-party manufacturing. But there's also, like we're seeing now with the vaccine announcements, Johnson and Johnson is not saying. Well, the initial press release said we will have a, a we'll be able to manufacture a billion doses. Even in the press release, you go down a little bit, and it was a we will build the infrastructure to do this. It doesn't explicitly say CMOs. Since then, they've said Emergent Biosolutions and Catalan will be key partners in doing this manufacturing. So they... They now admit, not admit, you know, they're they're more comfortable with talking about the fact that you don't need to have it all in-house. So that's been a big change. The merger and acquisition waves have been interesting also. Um, For me, just seeing the the valuations put on the gene and cell therapy CMO acquisitions in the last two years, where Catalent and Thermo Fisher combined to spend over $3 billion on two um, gene and cell therapy manufacturing companies. Um, that was that was eye-opening because that's so showing the way that things that happen in our sector are reflective of things that are going on within the larger pharma world. 
So, you know, those drugs are being developed. They are very high value products. They, you can't really just make them all in-house if you're going to be a, a smaller company. Novartis might go off and, and buy and build its own, but to everybody else, you know, it's better to have manufacturing partners and the value of that is shown in what Catalan and Thermo ended up paying in those cases. Yeah. So yeah, there's been a bunch of changes like that. Just the, the fact that we went from CMO to CDMO, you know, the fact <laughs> that development services became a, a thing, that it wasn't just commercial manufacturing, turnkey operations, that CMOs became much more integral to the way drugs were developed, that it made more sense to work with those companies earlier so that they understood the formulation, understood the technology, and could help you scale it as you get through into phase three and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been it's interesting. It's interesting. And I, I was interviewing Dan Stanton, who, who you know, um, another kind of journalist in the, in the sector. And he, he said a very similar thing on, on his interview around the emergence of the CDMO uh, kind of term and how that's kind of you know you've got to be developing it's difficult to just be a manufacturer these days and it, the, he talked very similarly about about the same thing and I just wanted to take a quick sidestep away from the the pharma sector I think you've given some really interesting insights and so out, outside of the pharma sector and you are a podcaster in your own right and you've been doing <laughs> yeah. you've been doing your uh, podcast about books and life uh, for for many years the virtual uh, memories show I think it's called yep. from memory and um, so it'd be really interesting for the listener to hear a little bit more about that and and also how you're becoming quite the runner I've been following you on Twitter and watching <laughs> you hear your runs continue to to progress and uh, yeah well, and how that's going as well uh, there's a running story that I'll share with you that's funny first following your numbers on Strava uh, where we could see everybody's paces, et cetera. I always have to remind myself, A, he's running a lot longer than I've ever run because I only started two years ago. Uh, B, you have much shorter legs than I do. And it, <laughs> it takes me more energy to run and that's why my times are much worse than yours. I have another friend who I met through the podcast who similar build to yours and I look at his numbers and they're also similar. I'm like, I start to get worked up and I think I'm 49 years old. I started less than two years ago. I'm six foot one and gangly. I'm not going to run as fat. It's okay. I, I can do the times I do. And, that, the irony uh, is I would kill for your height. <laughs> yeah, always a flip. We always want something different. Uh, the other thing I always fall back on is I'm running up like 300 foot hills all over the place. My neighborhood is, is there's no flat territory. So I always have the, uh, okay, Raman's running on, on flat ground. If I was running flat, oh, yeah. I'd still be a minute or two behind him, but at least, <laughs> you know, I, I feel a little better, but, but yeah, so that's, that's one side of things. The podcast, I, um, I started in 2012. I, uh, I was still at contract pharma at the time. I, um, I was inspired by the WTF podcast by Mark Marin, the, the stand-up comedian who, when his career and life were kind of falling apart, started doing these these long conversations with other comics. And I liked the conversations. He would also do these 20-minute intros that were all about his insane life. And I simply don't have an insane life. So I, I cut that part <laughs> down. But I thought, I know enough interesting people. Let me just sit down and, and you know, meet in person, have a conversation and, and you know, work from there. And it, it built up over the years. I did... Um, before the pandemic, which screwed everything up, I was around 370 episodes. And I moved into a weekly schedule with it in, in 2014. At the same time, I quit my job to launch PBOA. I also <laughs> gave myself the, I'm going to do 50 episodes a year uh, goal. And that I've held up with, but you know, I, I questioned my sanity at uh, different times. But my whole thing is just the 
sitting down with someone and having a face-to-face conversation. Um, it's, it's different than this. You and I know each other, so we can do this sort of conversation easily, but, but we both know it's a little different than we're, we're sitting at a trade show. We could just sit down in a booth and shoot the breeze for a while. Um, so I was doing that with writers, artists, cartoonists, musicians. The nice thing about it was among many nice things is the cascade effect where somebody you did a show with, uh, enjoyed the experience so much. They tell you about a friend of theirs. Who's another accomplished artist and tell the friend, you got to sit down with Gil and, and do a podcast. And so it, it built out this whole network that way. Um, in, to the point of meeting some really, really fascinating people and getting to sit down and, and honestly make friends. Um, yeah. I, I always assume with my low self-esteem, the moment I leave the room, they, they forget that I exist. But especially during this time where I've reached out to everybody, um, all my past guests, I've, I've reached out to to see how they're doing, see if they want to record just a little 20 minute remote conversation about what they're doing and how they're coping with the pandemic. Um those things have really highlighted for me that, yeah, these people, you know, A, they're human, B, you know, some of them I've, I've become pals with, which is, it's just weird when it's somebody you saw for one hour and you never spoke to again, but, you know, you managed to keep a relationship with, so. Yeah. And I have to ask and put you on the spot, but, sure. you know, the hundreds of episodes that you've, you've recorded and the, the guests that you've met, is there, is there one that really oh, sticks the, out for the any greatest- particular reason? I, I don't even worry about saying the greatest single episode I ever did was with Clive James. The, yeah, I thought you were going to uh, say that. I, yeah, I remember, that, that I, remember you, yeah. I remember you telling me about that last night. I was like, wow, he's met Clive James? This is this is a big deal, you know? I, so. When I started the show, I keep everything in this the great spreadsheet that knows all. And the spreadsheet does a, a bunch of different areas. And one area is the, for America, the Mount Rushmore list, the, the super guests who I pray someday I'll get a hold of. And Clive James was among them. But when I started the show, he'd already been diagnosed with leukemia and emphysema. So I assumed never going to happen. In the end of 2014, I heard him on a BBC interview uh, where he mentioned being in remission and his voice sounded okay. And I thought, if I don't ask, I'll never know. I may as well, <laughs> I've got his email from his website. I may as well give it a shot. So I wrote him around Christmas 14 and he wrote back saying, yeah, uh, you'll have to come out here because my immune system's shot. Um, how about the end of February? And I thought, uh, okay. And so I boned up on his work. Uh, his, his book, Cultural Amnesia, is one of my all-time faves. And uh, I flew out to England for 48 hours from, from New Jersey. I, I recorded with him, wow. then his wife, who's a Dante scholar, and then this amazing translator at Cambridge, Anthea Bell. They, they're all at the Cambridge area. And then I turned around, I flew home the next morning, and I thought, yeah, it's not going to get any better than this, Gil. That was <laughs> as good as it's going to get. Um, I've had other great ones over the, the years, but that was the the one that I felt put me on the map in a, a certain way. Ah, um, great. And he, yeah. he and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he passed away, was it last year? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. Uh, November, right around Thanksgiving. Uh, I think that Tuesday or Wednesday before Thanksgiving here. And I wrote to his wife, uh, Prue, just to extend condolences and again i never know if people remember me but it turned out she did which was very nice um and that's what one of the things i love love about the podcast medium actually is you have digitally captured that that moment in time with clive you know forever and uh, i'll tell you the, the the great moment of this for me um 
and this is going far afield from pharma, but there was this great poet up at Yale named Sandy McClatchy, and he died a few years ago. I, I went to his memorial in New York City. He was a well-known figure. And um, I got there a little early from another podcast, in fact. I, I was recording earlier in the afternoon, then I went up to where this is going to be held, went to the coffee place around the corner from the the Academy of Arts and Letters where they're having the memorial. And I'm sitting down uh, having some coffee, and I see a number of older people in their 60s, early 70s, and they're wearing little uh, pins with Sandy's face on them. So I, I went over to introduce myself. I assumed they were with the funeral in some or the memorial in some context. And it turned out it was two of his sisters. And they asked how I knew Sandy. And I'd mentioned, I recorded this podcast with him a, a couple of years ago. And we'd only met the one time in Connecticut, but we had a really nice 80 or 90 minutes of conversation. And they looked at each other and then said, you you have like an hour and a half of conversation with our brother wow. and we could listen. I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. Yes, I do. Let me write down exactly what the URL is, please. I, I, and I came out of that. I, I just gave them this gift that they Amazing. got to hear this thing from a, a, a brother they'll never hear again. So Beautiful. that was yeah, a moment where I felt like there was a reason for doing this besides you know, keeping me off the streets. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're almost out of time. A couple of last questions for sure. you, Gil. So, I know when the times that I've met you, you seem to have a great relationship with your wife. And I would I would like to ask you how your wife would describe you in three words. Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. I think that that's pretty much what <laughs> she would say. <laughs> I, that, that I, I could try and sugarcoat it, but I, I think that's really what she's seen over over uh, 15 plus years with me is is OCD. But but yeah, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> that explains a lot. Every time I've ever met you, you always look immaculate and, and your tie is always <laughs> perfect and your suit's always good. And, um, and, the, and the last kind of question I would think is just kind of any other uh, final comments or requests for, for the audience or anything else you'd like to share? No, it's just, you know, I'm really interested in seeing where the industry is going. Um, I'm glad to help represent them with, you know, with FDA, with Congress, getting them to talk to each other, I found has been really valuable. Um, to me, it's just, you know, making sure that this industry of CMOs and CDMOs, this whole world of, of outsourcing, you know, we achieve respect. I think it's the biggest thing with PBOA is that we got the the other participants in the sector to, to treat us like peers. We know we're not the guys discovering the molecule. We know we're not the the guys who are going to reap the the huge dollars from from you know some of these great biologics. But we also know that you know they can't do it without us, and we're we're glad to be part of this this world and and glad to be at the the table now talking with them. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Gil. As always, absolute pleasure to speak to you, and thank you so much for making the time. Thanks. Uh, thanks to you, Rob. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter and we will see you again next week. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.